It's a very special week for all of us I know with Thanksgiving coming up and the time to pause from work and other activities to rejoice in what God has done. And it's my hope that uh, through the service today that you would be uh, perhaps better prepared for that and that God would give you uh, greater insight into why we should bless Him and praise Him. I want to read the 103rd Psalm. We gave our attention to this last week, and today we will as well, just to remind you that this Psalm begins and ends in the same way. They're like bookends. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And the end of verse 22, bless the Lord, O my soul. This is David speaking to himself, and he's encouraging his heart to remember all the things that God has done for him. That's particularly true in the first five verses where they're very personal. David speaks to himself, reminding him of God's personal benefit. Beginning in verse 6, he actually expands that and begins addressing God's people as a whole. And he uses these terms like us and our and all and everyone and those that fear him. And so he expands that in verses 6 through 18 and says, let all of God's people praise him and bless him. And that will be our focus this morning on those particular verses. And by the time you get to the end of this psalm, the expanse moves even further where it's now, let all things praise him, angelic beings, everything that he has created, let everything praise his name. And you can see how there's just this escalation in the heart of David to, to praise and magnify this great God for all that he has done. So keep that in mind as we read together Psalm 103, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, 
and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us your grace and your help to do exactly what we are exhorted to do in this great hymn of praise. To give you credit and your proper due for your greatness and your goodness. And I ask that this week we would especially be mindful that you are a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help us to remember that you have not rewarded us according to our sins nor repaid us according to our iniquity, but you are like a compassionate Father. And therefore, we do well to bless you and bless you from our soul. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. It was sometime in the early 90s, perhaps the mid-90s, that I first came to New England. For those of you young people, yes, that was last century. I was college student. I was interning at a church in the New England area and had gotten together with some friends and we decided to go to an amusement park. The nearest amusement park at that time was Canopy Lake Park right here in Salem, New Hampshire. Some friends of mine went to that smaller amusement park and there they had a, a kind of theater there that was like a, a theater, like a bubble that you kind of went into and you sat down on a bench and you had this big screen before you. I think now it's actually called the Psychodrome. Uh, it's, it was different back then. There was something else going on in there. And you would sit on these benches, and there was kind of this rail in front of you. And on this huge screen, they tried to make, it, make you feel as if you were in the picture. So, so you were on a fighter jet. And all you saw were the clouds and maybe the little tip of the plane, and you're zooming through the clouds, and it was going to give you the sense that you're actually in this thing. There was a, a runaway train, as I recall, and uh, there was a, a runaway mine cart, like a coal mine cart, and you know, you're, you're narrowly missing things, and so it's kind of to get your, your blood boiling a little bit. Well, they had one in particular uh, scene, and it was a wooden roller coaster. And I distinctly remember sitting there and watching this roller coaster go up this long hill and go down and kind of bank left and then take another steep dive and go around. And I had this feeling of, I've been on this before. 
and I remembered the turn that was coming up. I was almost like leaning into it, knowing which way to go. And sure enough, when it got to the end of that roller coaster ride, it said, this is the Mr. Twister at Elitch Gardens in Denver, Colorado. Now, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I threw up on the Mr. Twister a bunch of times. <laughs> but I remember after having coming out of that little theater place saying, everyone's saying, man, wasn't that great? Didn't you see that? Did you see that roller coaster? And I was saying, see it? You should have been in it. I've been on that thing many, many times. Well, it's, it's one thing to simulate the experience of something and try to see it kind of at a distance through a screen. It's another thing to really experience it as it were in your soul or within and really be in the ride as it were. Well, when we read the Bible, especially when we read the historical sections of the Bible, we can kind of have this simulated experience. We read what the people did. We read what God did. We, we understand the, the movement of the narrative. But still, it's like we're looking at it through a screen and we're saying, well, that was then, and that's what God did with them, and that's how God was with them. But the Bible is actually written to get us beyond that sort of simulated experience where we would actually enter into a narrative and understand that, no, that same God that did that then is the same God that lives in me today. And that this should be my experience. And David in Psalm 103 is doing just that. He is looking back and he's pulling out from sacred history what God has done hundreds of years prior to his time, and he's pulling it into his time, which is 3,000 years ago, and the Holy Spirit has preserved us so that we, 3,000 years later, would actually have the same understanding and sense in our soul about God that David has. David's looking back on God's ways in sacred history. He's applying them to his present time. And we must do the same today. Let me just show you this in the text. Look at what David says in verse 7 of Psalm 103. He says of God, He made known His ways to Moses and His acts to the people of Israel. What's he referring to? Something we read back in Exodus, right? And David is saying, God did this with those people. And now look at verse 10. And just like he did with those people, he does not deal with who? With us, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And what David is saying is, here is the scene of sacred history that God did among his people, and he's saying, that's very much true for us now. Can I reverently say, he's saying, get in the roller coaster. This is what God does for us now. And we would say the same thing today. And he's encouraging all of God's people to bless God, to credit God for the good things that he has done in sacred history and those same things that he does for us today. Now, we've noted in past times and even just now that, that the emphasis here is on the people of God. These are people that know God. 
and, and they are defined this way in this portion of 103rd Psalm. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, God's steadfast love is toward those who what? Who fear him. The end of verse 13, again, he shows compassion to those who fear him. Again, the end of verse 17, those who fear him. Verse 18, those that keep his covenant. So David's focus is on the people of God that have a relationship to God by faith. And he says, this is how God works with his people. These are God's ways with his people. And because this has always been true, we must bless the Lord for this. So this morning, I want to preach to you on blessing the Lord. I should, uh, I guess it's appropriate. Bless the Lord for his astonishing ways with his people. And this is the theme of what we have in verses 6 through 18 of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord for his astonishing ways with his people. What we're going to learn from this is that God's people, then in David's time and now, we find great hope despite our own sinfulness when we consider God's mercy and greatness. How are we to bless the Lord for his astonishing ways with his people? What, what kinds of things did God do for his people? Well, we need to remember God's ways with his people in sacred history. Look again at verse 6. David says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So we're talking about an oppressed people. And then he says in verse 7, At that time he made his ways known to Moses and the people of Israel. So what comes to your mind? If you read your Bible... And he's talking about the Lord working justice for oppressed people, and he specifies a time frame in the days of Moses. What are you thinking of? You're probably thinking of the Exodus, where God delivered his people from the oppressors in Egypt, those taskmasters, and that God was working justice and righteousness for them. And while that is certainly true, I don't think that's the primary thing that David has in mind because of the specific event that he refers to. We'll look at that in just a minute. But what I do want us to note is this, that when David in verse 7 starts talking about Moses and the people of Israel and what God did back then, it's kind of like David is saying, let's have a testimony service. And let's let Moses and the people of Israel give testimony to this aspect of God's ways. And certainly when we look at that through the eyes of sacred history, we are encouraged by that, even in a testimony service, right? So, so this, this Tuesday uh, is, is our practice as a church. We're going to meet here at the church at 7 p.m., and we're going to have a praise service, and people will stand up, and they'll give testimony of God's ways in their life. Here's what God has shown me. Here's, here's what God has taught me. Here's what I praise God for. And David is saying, let's have a a testimony service, a praise service here, but let's use inspired examples. Let's use examples that God himself has recorded and preserved for us in his word, and let's let those testify of God's greatness. So what are these inspired examples? 
Well, it's the Lord working righteousness and justice for his oppressed people. And he makes known his ways to Moses and the people of Israel. Notice verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses. What are these ways? The ways are defined in verse 8. Here's the ways of the Lord. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's not always chiding, and he does not keep his anger forever. These are the ways that God revealed himself to Moses. Now, when did that happen? Well, I want to look at a couple of passages. Look at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, we're going to turn to a few passages in your Bible this morning, and it's really important that you look at these because you'll see how, how David is actually pulling from the Old Testament, and he is reviewing sacred history to have this testimony service. When did God make known his ways to Moses? These ways, that he was merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Look at Exodus 33, and notice with me verse 13. Moses is speaking to God in prayer. And Moses says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your what? Your ways. Isn't that what we read in the 103rd Psalm? God made known his ways to Moses. Here now, Moses, before God is praying, he's saying, God, show me your ways. Well, what are these ways? What is the context that we are in here? Well, you might just want to peek back to Exodus 32. And if you have a heading above that chapter, it probably says something like the golden calf incident. Do you remember that story from Sunday school? The people of God were delivered by, uh, from Egypt, and they came out into the foot of Sinai, that great mountain where God was revealing himself to them and gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is on the mountain, we're told that the people actually turned from this God who delivered them in Egypt, they built a false God and said, here is your God, O Israel. It was a time of great sin. And in response to that, notice chapter 32, look at verse 7. After this golden calf incident, we're told in verse 7 of chapter 32, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And now notice verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a what? a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God says, I've seen these people that I delivered from Egypt and they are a stiff-necked people. What does it mean to be a stiff-necked person? The imagery there is really like an ox an animal, a beast of burden, and you would put a yoke upon an ox so that he could pull the, the threshing instruments. And sometimes those oxen would, would stiffen themselves up so you couldn't get the yoke on their neck. It's like they're obstinate. They're resisting any kind of governance over them. 
we don't live in an agrarian society, or so that may not mean much to you, but I always think in terms of this, when, when my kids were little, and I'm sure I did this too, you'll have to ask my mom, okay? When my kids were little, and they were just infants, and sometimes we'd put them in the car seat, and they didn't want to go in the car seat, and you know what they did? Right? You know what that is? That's, that's stiff-necked. You're not putting me in that thing, right? And, and this is the idea of this word. It's, it's, it's obstinance. Unwillingness to come under the rule of another. And God says, these people are this way, given the golden calf incident. In verse 10, God says, let me alone, Moses. My anger will burn hot against them. I'll start all over with you. Now, let me ask you, would God have been right to do that? Would God have been right to do that? Absolutely. But did he? Why not? Seemed like a good idea when you read the story, right? So when Moses is talking to the Lord in Exodus 33, and Moses says, God, show me your ways, what he's saying is, show me your way with a stiff-necked, obstinate kind of people. How do you deal with stiff-necked, obstinate, stubborn people? Now, don't raise your hand, but do you know anyone like that? Don't you want to know God's ways with people like that? Well, look at chapter 34. Moses intercedes for the people, the end of chapter 33. He has said in verse 13, Show me your ways that I may know uh, and find grace in your sight. Verse 18, Moses in, in 33, Moses says, show me your glory. And now finally it comes to that. God is answering this prayer. And look at 34, 5. So the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Where did we read that? That's exactly what David is pulling on in the 103rd Psalm. He made known his ways to Moses, his ways with a stiff-necked and obstinate people. And he said his way with those kinds of people is mercy and grace and slow to anger. Now don't misunderstand. I stopped reading mid-sentence in Exodus 34 because verse 7 continues that God will by no means clear the guilty He'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And that's a quote from the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments where God says, I'll visit iniquity on the generations of those who hate me. In other words, God's saying, don't mistake my mercy and grace and forgiveness with the fact that I'm not just. Remember, God's wrath was kindled at 
the golden calf incident. He was right to be angry. He could have done that, and he would have been right to wipe out those people. God says, don't misunderstand that. But here the focus is on the fact that but God is merciful. In fact, this phrase about God, this, this is the first time this occurs, obviously, where God reveals himself to Moses this way. And yet these words about the Lord occur a dozen times in the Old Testament where the writers keep going back to this. Remember, God is this way. I want to look at just a couple of them because they're actually quite surprising. Look at this one. Look at the little book of Jonah. Remember Jonah? When you hear Jonah, what do you think of? The big fish, right? But Jonah's about so much more than just a, a fish tail. In fact, Jonah quotes Exodus 34 when he's talking to God. Look at Jonah chapter 4. And here we have the whole story of God told Jonah to go to the Ninevites and go to them and, and tell them to repent. God was going to destroy them for their wickedness. And Jonah didn't want to do that. He hated the Ninevites. They deserved God's wrath. And so he jumped on a ship to Tarshish and went the other direction. And that's where the whole fish story comes in. And now Jonah goes back to Nineveh, and he finally does what God says, and he preaches to the Ninevites. He says, you know, so many days, and God will destroy this city. It's probably the shortest sermon maybe ever given in the Bible, but had the greatest impact. But then Jonah, after he preaches, he goes and he sits on a hill and watches to see what God will do to those dirty Ninevites. And look at what he says in chapter 4 and verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry that when he preached to those wicked people, they actually turned. In verse 2, and Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see what Jonah's saying? I knew you would do this because that's who you said you were. That's who you say you are. You did this in Moses' day. Now, jo Jonah's not right in his spirit, but guess what? He's right about God. Those people in Nineveh that were wicked people, they turned, God forgave. He was compassionate. Look at this one. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Go back the other way in your Bible. Nehemiah, before the Psalms. In Nehemiah's day, this is a record actually of, of Ezra and his work among God's people. God's people have experienced God's judgment. They didn't keep the command of God, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and therefore they were expelled from the land for 70 years in Babylon, and they were in captivity. And now those people are getting ready to leave that land and come back into the land that God had promised to them. And certainly, they, they've experienced the consequence of their sin. But now God is saying, go back and return. 
And Ezra actually brings up this aspect of God's character. They've been exiled because of their sin, but they're saying, but have God's, but have confidence in who God is when you return. Why? Look at Nehemiah 9, and look at verse 15. Jumping right into this prayer, that's not just Ezra's prayer, it's the prayer of religious leaders, these leaders of God's people. Nehemiah 9, verse 15, they say to God, God, you gave them bread from heaven, speaking of the people of Israel in Moses' day. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and did what? Stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They're saying, God, we know this is our heritage. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. What was that? That was the golden calf incident. But they say, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said this is your god who brought you up out of the land of egypt and had committed great blasphemies blasphemies yet in your great mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness and these leaders are encouraging god's people they're saying remember god's ways with even our forefathers obstinate and stiff-necked and we've experienced the judgment of God, but remember that God doesn't give up on us. Look at his ways with stiff-necked people. Now go back to Psalm 103. You can see that this is what David is speaking of when he's saying we should bless the Lord for this, his ways with a stiff-necked people. People oppressed and even bound by their sinfulness, who repeatedly fail, who never seem to get the point. Again, do you know anybody like that? Well, what is God's ways with people like that? Perhaps you drag yourself in here this morning into this place and you completely are worn down by the thought of your ongoing failure to please the Lord. You have been plagued by sin again this week. Maybe you're suffering the consequences of sin. Maybe it's something that happened years ago, but those consequences are still being felt in your life. And sometimes you're tempted to think, God is so angry and exacting. And this passage tells you, you don't understand God's ways. God is actually merciful and gracious, and he does not deal with us according to our sin. This has always been his way, even with a stiff-necked, obstinate kind of people. Let me ask you, how do you respond to obstinate people? You know what my response is? 
I get angry. How dare you? How could you? That's not true. And we tend to project that on God, that, that that's how God is all the time. Because nobody ever one-ups him, right? And the scripture repeatedly has to come back and tell us, no, that's not who God is. He is gentle and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in a steadfast love towards you. So bless the Lord. Thank God he's that way. The fact is, beloved, God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. And we need compassion and grace and forgiveness. Since this is true, David applies this to his current condition. We have seen, David says, remember God's sacred ways with his people. Remember, this is what he is like. And now beginning in verse 10, he begins to apply this. Apply God's ways to you. He says in verse 10, Therefore, in his day, in his context, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Because he is this in verse 8, he does this in verse 10. Do you see that? He is this way, therefore, this is what he does. Nobody here, nobody on, on planet Earth today is rewarded according to their sins. Every day is a day of God's mercy and grace. If God gave me what I deserved, he would have to slay me and punish me forever in hell. Because I have sinned against a most holy but he gives grace. And even if you don't know him today through Jesus Christ as Savior, he gives you grace today because you're alive and you're hearing his word and his truth is coming to you and he's holding his hands out to you and saying, don't you know I'm gracious and merciful and forgiving and kind? How do we apply God's ways to us like he did with Israel? He doesn't deal with us according to our sin or repay us according to our iniquities. And quickly here at the end, what he goes on to do now in the psalm in verses 11 through 13, he gives three comparisons that point to God's love. Look at them very simply. Look at verse 11. He says, for, he just said in verse 10, he doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities. Why not? Because verse 11, and now he's going to give three comparisons. You see these words in verse 11? As, and then the second line, so. Look at verse 12. It begins with as. The second line, so. Verse 13, as. The second line, so. What's he doing? He's comparison. Just like this, so like this. And he's going to give you three comparisons that tell you this is what God is like. What are these things? Verse 11, consider the height of God's love for you. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward his people, those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? 
was written 3,000 years ago. Guess what? Nobody knows. We just put a bigger telescope in space, the, the James Webb telescope, I think it's called now. It used to be the Hubble, now it's the Webb. And that thing keeps looking out. And guess what? It's like we can't find the end of this. God knew that. That's why he said, as soon as you can measure that, you can exhaust my love. But you can't. It's inexhaustible. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Consider not only the height of God's love, the length of God's love. What is this length? God's forgiveness is complete. You can start headed east and you'll never meet west. You keep going east. You can go north and go to the pole and then suddenly you're headed south. But when you go east to west, they'll never meet. God says, that's, that's the length of my forgiveness. It's absolutely complete. God says, when you sin and I forgive you, I don't hold a grudge. I don't say, well, let me see if you really meant that. Well, I'm actually going to keep that one in storage for the next time we have an issue. I'm going to bring it out. God says, my forgiveness is complete. And finally, consider the depth of God's love. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. His compassion is sure. Now, this is what I find very interesting. God uses the illustration of parent and child here. Oftentimes, God speaks of his love with his people as a marital kind of love. But marital kind of love involves a covenant of decision and choice. And oftentimes it is a choice of will, even in marriage, to keep loving my spouse. Parental love is different. It's instinctive. I remember the day my children were born. And as soon as they were born, I remember holding them and thinking, this is a different kind of love. It is instinctive. I would do anything. In fact, it would feel very unnatural not to. God says, my love for you, my children, is like that. There's a depth to it. Like, I'm compa like you know compassion to your little children. God is compassionate towards you. Why is that the case? Verse 14 because God knows our what? Our frame. He knows how we are formed, literally. He remembers that we are dust. Remember Genesis 1? What are you made of? Your physical being is made of dust. We have this vacuum cleaner in our house, and <clears throat> um, my wife's vacuum. Actually, it's, I shouldn't say that. I use it sometimes, okay? And it has this canister on it that's like see-through. And when you vacuum stuff up, you can see all the junk in there, right, in the see-through canister. And sometimes I look at that canister and I think, there's part of me in there, right? <laughs> I mean, a lot of the dust in your house, I'm sorry, is like skin cells and stuff that falls off, right? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, ah, that's part of me. And it's saying, why is God so compassionate? He knows that. He knows on your best day, you're dust. 
you're weak, you're like a little child. And I think what it's communicating is this, God is understanding. He knows. He's compassionate. Like you would take a, a little child and not be overbearing, but sit them on your knee and, and comfort them. The final thing he does is he gives this contrast. He has these three comparisons that says, here's what God is like. Compare these things. Why? Verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And then he kind of elaborates on that with a contrast in verses 15 to 18. See how verse 15 begins as this same kind of illustration. But look at verse 17. What's the first word? But. It's a word of contrast. Before he was comparison, like this, so this. Now he's going to contrast, and he's going to say, God remembers us. He knows we're dust. Here's what we're like, but here's what he's like. What is this comparison? Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. In the summertime, the springtime, that flower comes up, and it's beautiful, and you see it, but when the summer heat comes, it is quickly gone, verse 16. The wind passes over it. It's gone, and its place knows it no more. What he's saying is, God understands we are all weak and fading. Physically, we are fading every single day. God knows that, and he knows it's because of our sin. That's not the way God originally designed it. That's because we stepped outside of God's design. And therefore, we fade like a flower of the field. But that doesn't mean God isn't concerned. Because look at verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. He says, every generation fades like a flower, but the same God is ever the same, and his steadfast love and righteousness is to you and your children if they'll fear him, and those children and those children. And God is rock solid in that. Though men come and go, people come and go, God's steadfast love is rock solid toward those who fear him. Because this is true, and this is who God is, and this is his nature, and these are his ways with, with even obstinate people. And because he is a great king, and he eternally does this. Therefore, verse 20, bless the Lord, all his angels. And verse 21, and all his hosts. And verse 22, and everything he's made. You can see the exaltation of the man's soul Bless God, this great, merciful, gracious God who is from everlasting, ever the same. Let's praise Him. This Thanksgiving, would you take time to bless the Lord for His astonishing ways with you? With me, Matt, obstinate. Stiff-necked, stubborn, oppressed by my sin. And yet God is merciful and gracious. Give God his due. Jim Hamilton said, a mercy not merited, a love not measured, a forgiveness complete, 
and a Father who knows our form. These are reasons indeed to bless the Lord. Will you bless the Lord? Friends, how many times did you fail the Lord this week? How many times did you go back to that sin that plagues you? How many times were you impatient with obstinate people? And yet, you're going to go home today, you're going to get in a car that works, and you're going to drive it to your home, and you're going to sit down, and you're going to have a meal that's been prepared, or go to a restaurant somewhere, and you're going to be surrounded by family that loves you, and you've got a church family to come to that loves you and cares for you, and you have your needs met. And all I want to remind you is that you have all of that because God has not dealt with you according to your sin. Because he is kind and gracious and compassionate. And let's bless him for that. Let's pray together.